Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast about people who on the surface appear to be totally ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Seemingly Ordinary, here we go. My friends, Sean and Jamie Kelter are healthcare workers and the parents of three kids, Claire, Josie, and an unborn baby boy. I've interviewed Sean before. He is a super fit chiropractor. He's my go-to guy when it comes to all things health and fitness. Jamie is a nurse and perhaps the most avid reader I know, and that is saying a lot. I'm not sure how many books she goes through in a year, but it could be between one and 200. In the past, I've interviewed people who have raised six or seven kids. Some of their kids are in their early 20s and they're out of the house, employed, graduated, and getting married. So I wanted to see how young couples whose kids are two, four, and unborn are thinking through some of the same complex topics of parenthood. Sean and Jamie are maybe about four miles into this 26.2 mile marathon. I respect them deeply, and I just want to know how they think. So hi. Hello, Tim. Hi. Well, before we get to raising kids, let's back up to your secret origin story. I just want to know what type of kids you were back in the day. Okay, um, my first thought is I was pretty average, but um, I read a lot of books. Surprise, surprise. I would always rather read a book than be outside or be playing a sport, but uh, I was willing to do those things if my friends or family wanted to. Um, in middle school, I started to get interested in singing and theater and forensics, also called competitive speaking. Um, and I did those things in high school, I did those things in college, and had a lot of fun with it. Um, took a lot of AP classes in high school, went into college with a lot of credits, and um, I don't know, just maybe a little bit of an overachiever, perfectionist, I guess, but I always had fun. I don't feel like I got too stressed out as a kid. Um, went to church with my family. Didn't really get into my Catholic faith till later on in life, I'd say, but I was, yeah, just Midwestern, Catholic kid, pretty oh, normal stuff. Highly imaginative. I guess so. Yeah, and just... all the reading, and yeah. writing, and things like that. And the AP, and just Brainiac. Tried. <laughs> okay. Shall yeah, I was, I was not a reader. Uh, I wasn't, wasn't not a reader, but I was like... My favorite subject was recess, and then after that, lunch, and then after that, PE, and then after that, everything else. I mean, I always, I did well in school. Um, I did fine in school, but um, probably just because by temperament, I was and am a rule follower. You know, I, I figured there's enough drama and stress in life. I recognized that as a kid. Like, you know, things are just always so much better at home when everybody's behaving and doing well at things. And so, like, why purposefully not do well, right? And so school never, fortunately for me, like, and, and I think the same for Jamie, school was never difficult, right? Getting a grades was never difficult. I can't remember a time that I actually had to, like, really study hard until I got to high school. Um, so I just, you know, it was... It was Pretty easy to, to get good grades, fortunately, you know, and so why not, right? I, I just always felt appreciated by, um, you know, my parents as far as getting good grades or maybe excelling at a sport or something like that. 
So, um, yeah, why, why do anything different? So, I, Jamie also was able to be in some accelerated classes as a grade school kid, and I had access to similar stuff too. So I know we both um, were, are, are grateful that we had that opportunity. So that sort of led us into maybe a greater love for learning in middle school and into high school and that kind of thing. So, yeah, but I was not anywhere near loving books as much as, like, grade school Jamie. And we see a lot of those traits that Jamie had in our oldest, Claire, who will be five in a few weeks, and she also loves books. Um, I'm tell a quick story. Jamie's dad loves to tell the story about how Jamie and her family and her brother, who's a year and a half older than she, were going on a vacation, and so they went to the library to get some books to satisfy Jamie during this week-long vacation, but the library, unfortunately for Jamie, maxes you out at 20 borrowed books, and Jamie was freaking out because, you know, what's she going to read for the other six days of her vacation? So <laughs> that was, uh, that was, when Jamie says she enjoyed reading or whatever, uh, yeah, it's an understatement, big understatement, so. I do have a lot of memories of, like, driving through beautiful mountainscapes and my parents being like, look out the window, Jamie, and be like, oh, okay, that's nice. Like, let me get back to my book. Or <laughs> taking me to a professional sporting event, and I always had a book, and they really wasted a lot of money on tickets for me. <laughs> I'm reading a book about the mountains. What more do you want from yeah. me? <laughs> okay, so then college. College comes along, and I, I just feel like college changes people. How did college change you, if it did, Jamie? Um, well, like I said, I kept kind of doing a lot of the same activities. However, I was in a difficult academic program at a difficult school. I was doing nursing at Truman State University. And for the first time, I felt like, oh, I can't be good at everything. And I started to get B's and it really got me down at first. But then I realized I can still become a nurse with a B average or, you know, a low A or whatever. And just it was humbling to encounter so much uh, difficulty um, but I kind of pushed the limits, still did a lot of things on the side. I did a, I was in a, had a lead role in a musical at my junior year, which was like the hardest year of nursing school. I just thought I would try it and, you know, had a lot of diverse friends because of all that nursing friends, theater friends, football team friends, because of a friend who's dating one of the players and just, it was a pretty diverse experience. I, and I kept going to mass. I, my roommate, my, my best friend in college was also Catholic, and we kind of kept each other accountable to at least show up to Mass, even if we were not in great shape on a Sunday morning. But um, So I'm grateful for that and, you know, dabbled in going to adoration and dabbled in helping with youth groups. Um, but like I said, it was still later on in my young adulthood that I kind of started to appreciate and come into my faith a little bit more. But college was just like... A little discovery period for all those different things. Yeah, a lot of good diverse experiences. Diverse experiences for a tiny town in northeast Missouri. I mean, liberal arts college in every way, I guess. It's, they try to bring in a lot of interesting things to make up for what's lacking in the environment. It's great. Sean? Uh, I don't know. I guess I, I didn't live on campus. I went to Washburn in Topeka, which is about 30 minutes east of the grade school, high school um, that I went to. And, uh, 
and I actually stayed living in St. Mary's, the town that I went to high school in, for the first couple of years of college. And then I finally moved to Topeka, and so my last um, years at Washburn, I lived in Topeka. But I never lived on campus, and so my college experience wasn't typical in the sense that I was incredibly socially involved on campus, right? Like I would take my 15, 18 hours of coursework, um, but, you know, I would, I would kind of clump it all together as much as I could, especially the first two years, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, all day, and then Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I'd go to work. So I worked at like a pizza place, I worked at Home Depot, I worked at a nursing home, um, I worked at a, you know, another, another establishment, but um, I had to, you know, pay my own way through school. I didn't prepare well for college as far as getting scholarships and grants. Like that's one thing Jamie could speak to is her knowledge and maybe the push she got from her dad and, and her mom to get as much money as she could grant-wise and, and scholarship-wise for school. When I, like I always knew I was going to go to college because that's what you do when you do well in school. You just go to college, right? Like that's, that was my understanding. But it was probably a month and a half before my freshman year of college during the summer after my senior year of high school. Um, I think I was sitting at the table drawing something or reading a book and my mom said, so uh, are you going to college in the <laughs> fall? And I said, well, yeah. So where are you going? Well, I'm going to go to Washburn. How are you going to pay for that? I don't know. I guess I just assumed that you'd help me out. Like I have some scholarship money I remember that I got notification in a letter that I was going to receive. And she said, yeah, we don't really have the money to send you to college. And so that was sort of my preparation or lack thereof for college. And so, uh, yeah, I just, um, I would just always pay for each semester at the beginning of the semester from the money that I made, you know, kind of like the summer before or during the term, you know, spring break and that kind of stuff. So that was sort of my college experience. I, I, I had a good network of friends from high school, um, one of whom who went to college up at Benedictine, another one who tried Washburn out for a year and decided college wasn't really for him. And now he's an electrician and does great, takes care of his big growing family. But um, I don't know, I just, I would, I would hang out with those guys on the weekend. Right? One guy would come home from Benedictine for the weekend or we'd go up there and hang out with him and, and we're still best friends today. So I never felt the need to extend myself out into like the social life of college beyond just like the classroom interactions and the lab partners and that kind of thing. So yeah, I just college to me was kind of a job where I would just show up, I'd go to school. It was like kind of an extension of high school in every way except I wasn't really playing sports anymore beyond intramurals so um, I don't know it was it was different it's definitely different than Jamie's maybe different than some people's experience um, it was also different in the sense that I had no idea what I was doing in college as you can tell my lack of preparation leading into college continued for a couple of years mm. until I had eaten up all of my prerequisites and realized I still have no idea what I'm doing here other than just getting you know mostly A's and some B's and like English 101, college algebra, freshman comp, and all the, you know, prereqs. And then it was like, okay, so what are you doing here, right? So I had to kind of make that decision later on. So when did you make that decision? Well, they make you declare a major your junior year. So okay. <laughs> when I first declared a major, um, I thought I was going to be an artist at first because I loved to draw, and that's what got me, you know, praise beyond 
you know, athletics and I wasn't good enough to, you know, be a college athlete, let alone professionally be an athlete. So um, I thought, well, I'll just, I'll be an artist. So I took a drawing class my freshman year, realized, yeah, these people that I'm in class with, they love drawing. It's just a hobby for me. So what's the next ridiculous thing I could pick? I'll be an uh, English lit major and I'll be a writer, right? I'll teach English by day and I'll write books by night, except I never really even cared to write anything. I just was an okay writer. And it was another thing that people thought, oh, you're, you're a good writer. Well, great, maybe I'll do that for a living, except I didn't love to do it. And I realized that shortly after I changed my major to English literature and was just disliking all of these literature classes that I was having to take. Um, so then, you know, I love athletics. I love sports. I love, I guess, human physiology, even though I didn't realize it at the time. So I thought, well, I'll be a physical therapist and I'll major in um, exercise physiology. Well, that was a good choice. Um, not because it led me to ultimately become a physical therapist, but because it led me to become a chiropractor and to really fall in love with all things um, homeopathic, naturopathic, fitness and health related. So it was, I mean, it was just a grace. It was a grace because I never prayed about it. I never asked God, like, what should I do with my life? What should I be? How should I you know, serve you in my profession? Um, I just went through a lot of like, trails that led to dead ends until ultimately I'm, I'm here a decade plus into being a chiropractor and realizing that was very fortunate. Like God led me here, but I had no idea what I was going to do at, at first when I stepped foot into college. It was just, again, the next step. It was like grade 13 for me, right? Well, props to you though for trying, I, I think I was counting three different things, mm -hmm. art, then maybe writing, then actually maybe literature. And then finally chiropractic, so I guess four different things. So. I also had a brief stint where I was going to be a social worker. Okay. A, I didn't know that. Well, it was junior year, I forget what the class, but they said you have to go, no sophomore, you have to go check out a 300 level course in, of some capacity. And so I chose some social work class. I think probably at the time I was taking both a sociology and an anthropology course. And so I kind of... And maybe I, I was a semester removed from abnormal psych or basic psych. And so I don't know, I had all of that, like natural science and social science working on me. And I thought, well, I like to help people. Whatever test they make you take in college that says, you'd be best geared towards this based on your answers to this one test. And I guess they picked up on what I have since found out that I'm like a strong empath. Like I'm very empathetic and mm. very like harmony minded and servant minded. And so they thought, you should be a social worker. And I went and sat in on a class and nothing turned me off and nothing really wowed me. But um, yeah, I think, I think God you know, had plans for me to do something more in like the health science of chiropractic, biomechanics, nutrition and all that. So we could also lump a brief like thought of being a social worker into my many failed like majors. <laughs> Well, I just appreciate that you've tried so many different things in order to find the right thing. Just one of my favorite sayings in life is if at first you don't succeed, try something different. Mm. So when you did that, Jamie, did you hop around in majors like this or did you pretty much know? 
Not really. In high school, I thought I wanted to go to med school, and I'm glad that I went. My mom found this camp for me at Mizzou called Mini Med School, it was for kids like me who thought they're interested in medicine. It met some medical students, realized they had zero life at all, and that their entire life, both in med school and in residency, were consumed by work. And it, even then, I kind of knew I wouldn't have been able to articulate it, but I kind of knew I don't want to work. 40, 50, 60, 80 hours a week. I want to have kids, I think. I mean, it was so vague at that time, but so I steered towards nursing instead, and I'm really, really glad. But all through college, I knew it was nursing, so. Well, I'm glad that you figured that out at a very early age. I have uh, two cousins who are doctors, uh, one of whom, Dr. Maria, she just loved everything about med school that you could possibly think of. And I knew a lot of med students when I was teaching at UMKC. She's just a freak of nature. You know, because, I mean, if you threw 100 hours a week at her and if she is sleeping in a cot in the office, she just loved it. She absolutely couldn't get enough of it. And I think it really helps if you have that type of personality when you're doing that kind of thing. So I don't know how well it works with a family later on. I mean, it can. I suppose you can work 40 hours a week and maybe be like an ER doctor or something or a family practitioner. You would know more than I do. You're in nursing. Can, can I be a doctor and work 40 hours a week? Um, yes, but it's going to take you so long to get to that point. And, you know, there's a Catholic physician in town who works part-time. She works only mornings, and the rest of the time she raises her kids. But I imagine it took her very long. You don't have an option of a part-time residency. Residents are expected to be on call and to work 13 days straight and things like that. So you okay. have to earn that and... Oh, yeah. Wasn't interested in going those lengths. It's good that you could see 5, 10, 15 years ahead with that situation and just kind of know where you're going to land. I think that's really helpful. Um, courtship and marriage. How did that happen? Oh, well. I, uh, I moved to Kansas City in 2011. I had wrapped up chiropractic school in Dallas in 2009. I had worked in Lawrence for two years, and then I got an opportunity at the office that I'm currently still with uh, in 2011. Um, prior to moving from Lawrence to Kansas City, I had found out from a group of Catholics that I'd met through the St. Lawrence Center in Lawrence that there was this very vibrant young adult community known as City on a Hill in Kansas City. And they were, they were coming up like... Um, every other month to this event called Tuesdays at the Boulevard or Reservoir um, or all these other things, right? But I was never able to because I worked until six and I just, you know, I, uh, I just enjoyed playing softball with those guys and gals in Lawrence and um, I had sort of just stumbled upon maybe like my reconversion, which is a story in all of itself, summed up by simply saying like I never left the Catholic faith, but it was like the summer or the spring before I moved to Kansas City that um, I just started reading good Catholic books. I made it um, a priority to say my rosary every day. I was going to daily mass over the summer at the St. Lawrence Center, and um, I think just the daily reception of the Eucharist, which was something that I'd never had, um, or never had made a priority, just really lit a fire that carried over once I moved to Kansas City a few months later, kind of near the fall. Um, so I get this job in Kansas City, I decide, well, if I'm going to be working in Kansas City, maybe I should start looking at a place to live in Kansas City as opposed to driving from Lawrence all the time. So I go to Reservoir uh, one Thursday night, um, 
who do I meet but Carrie Kafka, who at the time was kind of the founder of City on a Hill, but at the time was also kind of in charge of City on a Hill. And she just, you know, recognizes that she doesn't know who I am and reaches out to me like Carrie was apt to do. And I explained to her, well, I just got a job in Kansas City. I'm looking for a place to live. She said, well, look no further. I have a place where you can live, right? It's like she owned a house. And um, so I ended up moving in with this guy, Mike Devis and Ferd Neiman. And uh, yeah, I... I met my first weekend in Kansas City. Like, I had just moved in probably that Friday. And then that Saturday, there was a party at the Shaughnessy's parents' house, right? And that night, I met, like, 50 people. Jason Osterhaus, Matt Mays, um, and all these other people. Like, I remember those two people in particular. And I also remember meeting Larissa Rice, who has a new last name that I don't know what it is. But she was in chiropractic school at the time. So I remember meeting her, too. But I just remember leaving that place like, wow, everyone is so friendly. This is incredible. Well, two weeks after that, Labor Day weekend, this event called Nature's Call, which is an annual camp out founded by like Greg Doring and a bunch of his homies from back in the day. And it's still like going strong however many years later, maybe almost 20 years now or maybe Oh, not. over 20. Over 20? Gosh. So, it started in his childhood, technically. Okay, got it. So, um, yeah, so I go to Nature's Call because I'm like, hey, I enjoyed meeting those like 50 new people. This is like, it felt so effortless and, and it's just amazing Catholic. So I go to Nature's Call and that's where I met Jamie. So all of that long backstory was to preface that Nature's Call 2011 was when I first met Jamie and um, we were playing this made-up game of volleyball where you were allowed to catch the ball, pass it to someone, and then like slam it down on the other side. And I, uh, I don't know, I just remember of all the whirlwind of people I'd met at the Shaughnessy's two weeks before and then the two weeks leading up to Nature's Call I'd met even more people. Um, and then I meet like 200 people at Nature's Call. But I remember meeting Jamie. I remember I had gotten out and I was sitting by the side and then she had gotten out and she sat by um, just real briefly until the next game started. And then I, we walked back after the game. We walked back through the woods and over the road back to our campsite. And I got there first and I had started playing this game called Kube with like Phil Wiegand and Luke Yeager and somebody else. And Jamie comes walking by with her friends and uh, they kind of glance over and I said, hey, you guys should play. And, um, and uh, Jamie says like, I'll be on your team. And I kind of thought to myself like, I think you want to be on my team. Like, what's, <laughs> I don't know, it's probably just my ego, but I'm like, yeah, you can be on my team. So I'm showing her how to play and we play this game for like 30, 45 minutes. And then it's time for mass. Um, and we didn't really talk to each other much after that because it was later that night that I had to leave to get back to Kansas City, although she was staying one more night. And then sometime during that next week, I was trying to think of like, what is the most casual, less like Facebook stocky way for me to reach out to her and like see if she wants to hang out sometime. So I don't know. I probably gave it four or five days or something and then I just sent her a message like hey uh, we met and played Coob and probably threw in a bunch of like non-threatening corny jokes and it was like eh, maybe we could hang out sometime um, yeah and then we uh, we met one Saturday morning she was getting off work at the night shift and um, 
we I was watching football with Logan and somebody else and yeah, I don't know, we just, we and we hung out, and then we hung out again, and then I asked her kind of on an official date, and we just kind of kept hanging out after that, so, man, that was a really long, rambling, <laughs> detail-filled story. Yeah, we still have courtship and marriage to talk about. <laughs> it's, is it weird that I have such a vivid memory of all that? I don't know, I mean, I remember no, all good. of it, and yeah, it's very, it's very good, it's very memorable. I okay. will only add that I was kind of in a similar place or just getting started in my career kind of I was getting reestablished in Kansas City because I had spent you know half of my childhood and adolescence here moved back for a year after college and then somebody told me about City on a Hill and I had this vague desire to get deeper in my faith and I thought I should probably be hanging out with some other Catholics and um, went on this camping trip which is honestly pretty weird because I I was not an outdoor person at that time. I'd never been camping. I went with a girl who assured me that it would be fun and she would help me. That's Kim Canale. She loved to camp, so she helped tell me like what to bring. And um, But Kim and Jen Reavers and I were all like brand newbies in the City on Hill group. So obviously it turned out well. We kept going back to Nature's Call. Sean and I went back one more time. And then the third year that we were there was when he proposed. So... That was pretty cool. proposed by the volleyball court where Mm -hmm. we first met. But it was no longer a volleyball court. It was just like this... Overgrown grass. Yeah, it was just this hard sand overgrown with grass. And the rusty poles were still there, but the net was gone. And there was this guy (laughs) 50 feet away, like, getting, like, half-dressed over by the uh, crummy-looking bathrooms. And we were just eating Panera trying not to get overrun with ants on this, like, blanket. And Jamie must have known something was up. And I had asked Emily Hutfels, now Emily Payne, um, who's a photographer, to just wander over, right? Like, a few people were in on the secret, like, hey, I'm going to propose to Jamie. So Kathleen and Luke Yeager were out for a walk, and they just happened to, like, walk by later because they knew what was happening. Um... Emily was under instruction to kind of like, oh, pretend like you're over there taking pictures of, I don't know, the overgrown dirt and the guy changed out of the But um, so she was able to capture the proposal for us um, on her camera, which was very appreciated. And then we came back to the camp after I had proposed. And fortunately, Jamie said yes. And people had like some champagne and, and other things. And so we were able Doug to celebrate. Hinnick. Yeah, Doug Heenick had got a couple bottles of champagne and it was just really cool to come back over to the campsite and everybody's just like, let's see the ring and oh, congratulations. But I thought, yeah, what a great, what a, what a neat place to do it um, where we'd first met. And uh, I had, uh, in discernment of my proposal, I'd spent um, an hour in adoration every day for 30 days leading up to it. And during that time, I was journaling and knowing how much Jamie kind of like loves to read and loves journaling and that kind of heartfelt stuff. I, uh, I stapled all my original journaling together and kind of gave it to her. I wow. read, I read her some of it as, you know, as part of the proposal, but she's got it somewhere. Um, just kind of 30 days of my thoughts in front of our Lord on, you know, is, are you calling me to marriage? I'm pretty sure you are. And if so, I have a really good idea of who I want that person to be, uh, unless you have you know, speak now, Lord, or for hold your peace, because my plan is totally to propose to this girl 
um, in about a month and a half. So here's here's your time to talk me out of it. And fortunately, he did. So he must have thought it was a good idea. So what year was this? 2011 that? or 2013? 2011 that we met. We um, did the courtship thing for a couple of years. In all honesty, it was it felt to me like too long of a time. I remember telling friends of mine the following summer of 2012, like, I'm going to marry Jamie. Like, we're on a float trip, and we just happened to be canoeing down the Kansas River, and I just kind of said, like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to marry Jamie. And they're like, oh, oh, snap. And you're like, great. Like, my brother was there, and two of my best friends, and they were both married, and it just was the first time I ever kind of like said it out loud, you know. I didn't know that was a full year before we got engaged. <laughs> well, it was, uh, yeah, I guess, well, I guess I'm, I might have my timing wrong then. It was, okay, it's two years that we got married or engaged and then a year after that we got married. It may have been the summer that we got engaged. I'm thinking the the time from engagement to marriage was what was really, really long. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, that's my fault. We, yeah, it was, it was the summer of our engagement. It was like three months before I proposed that I probably said that out loud. But then we had an entire year of engagement, which really felt like a long time. So it was three years from meeting to marriage, um, all of which was filled with dating, courtship, engagement. And it was, it was a long time to wait, but... I don't know, it, it worked out, so I guess I can't dispute it too much. Jamie, when did you know that you wanted to get married to Sean? Right oh. away. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there was a moment, but I do remember one moment we had gone to visit his family in St. Mary's, and it just occurred to me, like, what a good dad he would be after seeing him interact with his nieces and nephews. His brother BJ now has nine kids, but back when we were dating... I think they just had their fifth, so, you know, they're just starting out. <laughs> and, um, Amateurs. He right. just really enjoyed that time with them. The, his nephews especially just kind of thought the world of him and got so excited when Uncle Sean was coming. And um, so then I, it was just like like weird little train of thought, like, maybe he'd be a good dad. Oh, maybe, maybe he could be my kid's dad. Oh, maybe that means I'm in love with this guy. Like I was, it was so backwards, you know. Like I kind of went the f- from the end to the beginning, but then I was just like, okay, this is serious. <laughs> but I feel like I knew for a while before engagement happened, and all the while our friends were pairing off. People who started dating after us were mm. we're going to their weddings, mm. and because um, Catholics just tend to some Catholics tend to rush these things for various reasons, not rush in a bad way, but they, everyone has their own timing. But I did have some moments of like, man, is this, is this happening? But it, it was God's timing and I, I'm glad it worked out the day, way it did. Well, I mean, it's worked out great. And so now you have kids and I really want to just ask a million questions about kids. I think my first one is with a four-year-old and a two-year-old and with being eight months pregnant how do you just keep from going crazy this guy keeps me from going crazy how do you keep from going crazy well, jamie likes to to joke that my um motto is hakuna matata which i guess isn't too far from the truth i'm pretty laid back um which isn't always a good thing you know like there are certain times that things need to get done and we need to have a plan and so jamie's like momentary 
type A uh, will get me on track, right? So, but there are times where my Hakuna Matata will relax Jamie a little bit. So that's probably what she's talking about. Is she has more of a propensity to maybe overstress, and I have a propensity to understress. But sometimes a middle stress is what's required to get things done, and so we often meet in the middle. And that was going to be my answer: is that we frequently reconnect and keep each other grounded. In fact, just yesterday I was at work and Jamie texted me to say, I feel like Claire, the four and a half year old, and I have been at odds today. She's kind of doing this and I feel like maybe I'm overreacting. And so she just reached out and I just said, here's what I think. And, and then, you know, she took some of that advice or continued to you know, pray about the, the situation and then everything worked out fine. So she is comfortable just kind of like, quote, bothering me, which it's never a bother, but just letting me know if she's having a rough day. So, and sometimes it's just so I can do nothing else but pray, right? It's not like, hey, I need your opinion on this, but it's like, we're having a rough day at home today. Could you please say a prayer for us? And I'm immediately, you know? So... We pray for each other when we're maybe one on two with the kids, or um, but but you know we also reconnect. We make time once a month to talk about the kids, our relationship, our family, um, and that's like a, a two hour kind of get together. But every night, you know, there's the there's a possibility of us just catching up with each other and touching base on like how things are going. So. We're both very proactive in every aspect of our life, and so we try to catch, you know, things before, like before we're insane, like, say, like, hey, I've noticed you're kind of twitching lately. <laughs> <laughs> before you go full-blown crazy, is there something we need to talk about? So we just okay. try to reconnect with each other. You, you just kind of, I guess, hear the warning sign a little bit. Sure. You know, like, I don't know, if you're driving along and you just hear like a tiny, tiny, tiny little knock on the engine, so to speak, mm-hmm. instead of saying, well, you know, it'll, it'll probably go away. I mean, you actually like do something about it. Sure. You know, before it blows up and you have, you know, a horrible burning wreck on the highway. Right. You know, you've addressed it when it was small yeah rather okay and we have a lot of fun too right like we take the kids to the park we goof around we horseplay here at home we wrestle we tell jokes like i don't know i think maybe our kids don't think that life is such a big serious deal you know we're we're trying to just model the fact that you know be joyful like life is so much more fun when you're joyful yeah just be happy yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. you're both very disciplined people and just as a teacher why i don't have kids but i've just always kind of felt like why do we have to have this contradiction between discipline and having fun right people should know that I, i like them that i like my students and i want to do well for them and we're also going to be working roughly 98 minutes out of every 100. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that we can't joke and be easygoing all along the way, right. the entire trip. That's just kind of my take on things. Is that, a t- is that one of the titles of Jocko, one of his books, like Discipline Equals Freedom? Yeah, yeah, is yeah. Is that the title yeah. of it? Yeah. I thought it was something like that. Yeah, uh, that's the truth, you know? Like, without discipline, you're just a slave to your passions and emotions, which never, doesn't sound like a good idea to me. So, right. Yeah, discipline... We, we, we do. We try to be very disciplined. And even crafting that with the kids, you know, just so it's important. Do you have anything you want to add to this family philosophy? 
Oh, I don't think there's anything wrong with scheduling fun either because that appeases my type A nature and I like to organize things ahead of time that are going to be a good time, but the spontaneous fun we have at home is just as good. So, yeah, um, I think just going back to like what helps us stay sane, what helps me is that we're in, we have a, we have a good circle of people around us too. Mm-hmm. We have friends with kids exactly our kids' ages, like you know, we regularly hang out with four other couples who were all married in the years of 2014 or 2015, and we all have two to three children. And so naturally the kids are going to be the same. And so I reach out to those moms all the time just to vent or get to get ideas, to get together to talk about a spiritual book. Um, Sean gets together with the, the dads every single week. Um, for a men's group and so I draw a lot of strength from our community Um, it really helps to not be in it alone Mm because of course I'm not alone when I have Sean but it just helps to know there's other families other houses that the same turmoil or fun or both is happening within their walls too yeah I just uh, people have often commented in America about how we just don't have the community spirit perhaps that we need to and if you don't have that community that can really be a tragedy for people. So if you don't have it, if you can create it, mm-hmm. you definitely have to make an effort to create it as mm-hmm. well. And, and just props to both of you for doing that. Um, okay, kids, tell me just a little bit about Claire and about Josie. And I don't know if you could tell anything about the personality of an unborn child. I would just love to hear it. Yeah. With Claire, the nice way to phrase it would be she's a natural born leader. But the probably truthful way is she could be kind of a jerk sometimes, right? She's very strong-willed, but she's very sweet, too. She, my mom likes to tell a story about, like, when I, my first day of kindergarten, the teacher called my mom and said, your son just read the class rules to the whole class. And my mom said, yeah, he's been reading for a little while now. Jamie read even before I did, but Claire blows us both out of the water. We're on a... I don't know, family vacation last summer, so she was a month shy of her fourth birthday, and we stop off at like Arby's to get something because we're on the road, and Claire's standing there, and she goes, big roast beef, and she's just like reading it, <laughs> and I'm like, how do you know, like, I know you know the word big, that's easy, you know, she knows the B says B, the I says I, the G says G, and she'd kind of learned to piece that together. I was impressed with beef, but I was really impressed with roast. That, to me, showed some degree of like... I don't know, like conceptual thing. Like she sees the sandwich, she sees the beef. Maybe she's heard of roast beef before. So she sees this word starting with R, ending with S-T, and she just says roast. But anyway, she she's amazing. She amazes us sometimes. She's going to be very smart, but it's our job as parents to take that natural-born leader in her and keep her from becoming a tyrant. Right? Okay. She uh, Another story about her taking her to like a community center, and she just like busts in on the scene. There's already like four or five kids there, most of whom are at least twice her age, and within 15 minutes, she has most of them following her because she's just like orchestrated this game. We're all going to do this, and you're this person, and I'm this person, and then these words come out of her mouth. Follow me, my people. (laughs) She said, follow me, my people. Follow me, my people. And uh, this one kid I could tell was getting 
kind of done with it and she kept trying to get away and Claire's like hey no we're doing this and so I said Claire come down here please so she comes down from the play structure and I said if kids don't want to play the game that you're playing that's okay let them go do what they want to do okay dad okay dad so she uh yeah she has a tendency to sort of try to take over right but um but she is so sweet with Josephine She's so hilarious. She's got such a great sense of humor. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I hope, I hope every trait that she currently displays, she continues to have as she gets older. Uh, it's just going to be our job to take those ones that are a bit overbearing or whatever and, and just kind of shape them virtuously, right? Like yeah. take, take these gifts that she's been given and make sure that they go the way of virtue as opposed to vice. So. Okay, that's Claire. Jamie, Claire? Um, I don't think I have anything to add on Claire, except one short story. We're at the playground today, and this Claire immediately links up with this other four-year-old girl, and they start playing. And by playing, it's Claire being like, come over here, do this, follow me, just like she did in Sean's story. And after a few minutes, this other four-year-old sits down by me and goes... I just need a rest from all of her play ideas. <laughs> I do too, kid. I do too. <laughs> Josie, we used to say when she was a baby, like, oh, she's going to be the chill one. Claire's going to be the high-strung, energetic one. Josie's going to be, like, chill and relaxed. And I still think that sometimes, but her personality has been so shaped by her big sister because they're with each other almost every waking second of the day. She picks up so many things from Claire. She picks up this like frustrated noise and look and stomp that like I knew she got exactly from Claire. And so it is a little hard to say what's Josie and what's being rubbed off on her, but she's a little more like sweet and affectionate. Like she will always give a hug and a kiss when asked. Where Claire, it's a little more of like a mind game um, to get it. And um, I don't know. Josie also loves to read, well, look at books, but she's starting to put things together. And, um, it, yeah, she, her, her personality is definitely in progress, but she's, she's very, also hilarious, like in a way that Claire is different. Um, she has a really she does a lot showman of sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah, she does a lot of voices, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, she's not even three. Or she's trying to do voices. But she, I think that's part of her just being very imaginative. Mm -hmm. So Josie will... Claire never did this, but Josie will say like, Oh no, um, you're, you're dad Tiger and you're mom Tiger and I'm baby Margaret and Claire's Daniel. We're like, okay. Like, alright, fine. So, But then you'll forget and 20 minutes later you'll call her, Hey Josephine, could you... No, I'm Margaret. Sorry. Margaret, would you please pick up your toys? But then a day later, you know, she'll be crying about something. I wanted this. I'm like, Josephine, do you need to go to your room to calm down? I'm not Josephine. I'm Margaret. I'm like, wow, we're still, we're still pretending. She's a method actress. I guess. She is. Space and character. My but. favorite thing that she did in that regard is she assigned characters from this little show that they like called Little Einsteins and... Claire and Josie were some of the kids in the show, and they gave me the role of Rocket, who's the rocket ship who flies them around, so that's fitting. Pretty much what you do. But then I tried to tell them, hey, go pick up your toys or something like that, and Josie very quickly says, Mom, Rocket doesn't talk. <laughs> so I wasn't allowed to talk when I was Rocket. I had to, like, shake 
and make little jingling noises, noises, but I definitely couldn't be telling them what to do because uh, I was just a rocket. Do you <laughs> step back at a certain point and go, how did my life come to this? Yes, every day. <laughs> no, sometimes. <laughs> okay, so then there's uh, an unborn child coming along. Can you tell, and this is just such a dumb question, but I don't know. Can you tell anything about a child's personality before they're even born? You know, I don't know yet about this one. With the girls, though, I would have said that the way they were born kind of uh, foreshadowed their personalities a little bit. So maybe ask me in, in, you know, four or six weeks or so. Mm-hmm. Because as far as the, like, Joseph being easygoing, her birth was a breeze. Claire is not easygoing, and her birth was anything but easygoing. So I just think that would be cool if every everybody's birth story affected their personality but i have no idea yeah i can't really tell with this kid other than i'm older and pregnancy feels different this time but other than that okay just grateful to have him coming along i think your question is kind of a classic nature nurture thing right because i could tell you a lot about the environment i can tell you a lot about the nurture that this kid's gonna get before he's here just based on who jamie is who i am who his two older sisters are um so yeah, I don't know, nature-wise, if, uh, yeah, I don't know, it, it's, it, again, it's a very nature-nurture question. I think nature is incredibly important. I'm not a neuropsychologist or anything like that. Um, Jamie takes very good care of herself during her pregnancies. She has read up and studied a lot on just kind of natural childbirth. It's something, something she's very passionate about, so she's had both Claire and Josephine um, completely natural and not out of any sense of... Um, egoism or uh, you know she doesn't parade it around like she's super tough in fact she's probably one of the biggest wimps I know if I'm just being honest <laughs> I mean that and I mean hey, this, I kill spiders without your help sometimes yeah wasps too I guess but uh, she I'd put anyone else you know I'd put my money on anybody else in a fist fight with my wife but I can also say my wife has done the strongest thing I've seen anybody do twice. Like I was exhausted after Claire's birth and I didn't suffer any pain, but I was exhausted because I was there for every contraction, the whole labor, and it was it was a lot of work. And Jamie suffered all the pain, Jamie gave birth to this child, and it was very important to her to do it that way because in her great education, she knew it to be kind of like the best way for for our baby and for her and so um and same thing with josephine uh so that goes a long way to who this child's going to be is the nine months they spend inside of jamie growing their their body their brain and um so that's a big part of it but then they're going to erupt into this world of chaos (laughs) that we've got in these four walls with claire and josephine and the two of us but uh yeah, hopefully, hopefully everything goes goes well. Yeah, right now this kid's in this absolutely gorgeous air conditioned condo <laughs> yes. with just like endless food and drink and just everything being luxuriously supplied, and she gets to you know, or he gets to hear just the wonderful voices of parents having intelligent discussions. <laughs> yeah, that's about the, to come to an end. <laughs> hopefully, all the screams of terror are muffled by the you know layers of skin and the whooshing of the abdominal aorta or whatever. So. Okay, so you've got two. What was easier, one kid or two kids? 
That is a good question. I was just kind of counseling or just offering my thoughts to a friend at work the other day who was newly pregnant with her second and just really worried about how it was going to go. And I said, it will be harder at first, but then it's easier because everything new is hard. Mm -hmm. Having one new baby felt like the hardest thing in the world. Having a second baby with a two-year-old who still needed everything felt like the ne more so the hardest thing in the world. But now these kids play with each other all day long. They fight and they need a lot of intervention, but mm -hmm. they keep themselves so entertained and suddenly I'm like, I never run out of things to do, but I'm constantly feeling grateful in this stage that we've reached that they're so, they're so, they just want to be together and having fun. Mm -hmm. So I hope that that continues that each child that gets added just makes life a little bit easier, but it has to because these big families, it wouldn't work any other way. Mm, that's pretty interesting logic. We'll, we'll probably have to kind of talk about that a little bit. You know, I, I interviewed one family with six and another one with six and another one with seven and pretty much everybody with only one minor exception says it just simply gets easier. And from my point of view, that was just a gigantic shock. It's probably common knowledge to some other people, but it was just a gigantic shock. And they just said, well, as they get older, they do chores and they play with each other and they keep each other entertained and just everything's great. Yeah. Sean, always, what do you think? Sorry, I'm sorry, one Jamie, more thing. First. I'll yes, always please. remember Sean's brother telling us, um, I think maybe we were pregnant with our second when we asked him, but like, what was your hardest transition from zero to one, from four to five, what was it? And he said, without a doubt, zero to one, because that's when life changes. And after that, the changes get less and less noticeable. So, Oh, 100%. And he is the one who now has nine. So mm -hmm. if he still thinks the first one was the hardest, I'm cool with that. Zero to one. What I remember him saying is that it's the next one is always the hardest, right? Like they have, oh. you have your first child and it's life-changing. Right? Okay. And then you have number two, and you think, like, one was a cinch. Like, two is tough. But then you have three, and you think, what were we so worried about with two? Three is really the difficult one. And it just kind of goes from there, where you have your ninth, and you're like, eight was no big deal. Like, nine is kind of tough, right? That's, that's the story I kind of remember. But I also remember him saying that... Once they can pour their own cereal, like, that's a game changer, right? So you have big families. I, I remember thinking this, like, I can't even imagine a family with, like, six, seven, eight, nine kids or however many. Um, but I was thinking of it as someone with no kids or one kid. Like, if I had nine kids tomorrow morning, right. that would be crazy for me, right? But if we grew into that, then it would be seamless, right? To me, it's not a question of what's harder or what's easier. I was thinking of it from a standpoint of what's busier, which is always going to be more, more is busier, and what's more joyful. And again, for me, more is more joyful. So I look at our current family of two children and one on the way, and I think we're certainly busier than we were with just Claire. In fact, we always kind of joke around, like, what were we doing with all of our time before we had kids? For that brief period of time we were married and we had no kids, what were we doing? <laughs> like, like there was so much time there. And, uh, and you guys had a lot of cool hobbies. We did, and we were still involved somewhat in City on the Hill at that time. And, and we had we had things like we were doing. But now we look at our lives, which we love, and it's like there's lots of things that we 
might like to do, but we'd rather you know be home more and we wouldn't take time away from home to do those things. So we're so much busier with two, we'll be busier with three, but there's more joy with two. And there will be more joy with three. And there will be more joy with four, God willing, and that kind of thing. So I don't know if it's like a question of what's harder, what's easier. Busier, it's always going to be busier with more. And, but I th- it's always going to be more joyful. I've, I've heard that your love, like your capacity to love, Jamie, I think you told me this. You read in a well, book. Father Mattingly's quote. It's just very eloquent that the, your heart, a heart grows in capacity for love like the more children you have. Mm. I remember thinking when Josie was, when Jamie was pregnant with Josie, I almost kind of had this thought of like, I don't want to share my love with another kid. Like, I should love Claire so much. I don't want to share that love. And now I think like, what a silly thought that was. I knew at the time it was kind of silly, but it was a, an authentic like thought. It's how I really felt. But now it's like, oh, Josephine so much, and I don't love Claire any less. In fact, I might even probably love her more. Um, so it's just the, the love grows as the family grows. So I don't know. We're, we're, we're open to you know God increasing the size of our families. He sees fit. But you know at this point, we've got number three on the way, and we'll see what the future holds. Man, you both just changed my mind about something. All this time, I was thinking harder versus easier, depending upon the number of kids, that that's the question. Now I'm beginning to think that's just not as good of a question of what makes you more joyful? Mm -hmm. Does it make you more joyful to have two, three, four, five, six, seven? Or does it make you less joyful? I, I just think maybe that's a much, much better question. Yeah, Not a question we can probably speak too much to because we just have the two and one on the way, but you mentioned those families of six, six, and seven. That would be interesting to hear. Like, you know, looking back on your lives over the past 15 years, are you more joyful now than you were? Yeah, because who knows? Maybe maybe they're (laughs) listening to this and they're like, that guy is so naive. <laughs> yeah. Call us in 10 years and tell us how much joy you feel like you have, buddy. But well, hopefully we will. Well, I, I think I could answer for them. Actually, you go first, oh. please, Jamie. You said, you know, we're not going to have nine kids tomorrow. And that made me think. I got some good advice via a podcast the other day. Danielle Bean, who's a Catholic author. She has six kids and her youngest is 13. She has some grandkids now, too. And she said, you know, God gives you the grace you need at the time that you need it, it's like our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Like, God will not give us the grace tomorrow to have nine children because we don't need it. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think to say that it builds and we, you know, it gets easier, but it gets harder. It's it all, it's all true. Mm-hmm. You know, unless your third cousin once removed that you didn't know existed somehow drops Wills off. Wills the children. <laughs> yeah, sends you like six kids because, you know, I don't know, she's going to need to for some reason. You know, mm-hmm. then you probably develop the grace to handle the whole situation. That might be a harder adjustment period, but I, yeah, I would just have to trust that God would give us that grace too. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, you've got a four-year-old natural leader in your family yes. who could probably just take control of the whole situation. What Jamie just says probably the primary thing that keeps me from going insane, and that's the faith that God will give us the grace, right? See, yeah, I'm Hakuna Matata in a lot of ways, but I still worry. Like, I still worry about the world that my kids are going into and the world that we currently live in and all of its faults and flaws, even though it's got a lot of its you know blessings too. Um, I worry. I worry that we're not going to do a good enough job, that we're not going to 
equip our kids to survive out there, so to speak. And um, it's the it's the faith that God will give us the grace. Like if we just keep asking for it, and we do daily, daily we pray together as a couple in bed after the kids go to bed. You know, she does her individual prayer, I do my individual prayer, and then we pray together. And we're, if, if I had to count on one hand, like Jamie could tell you, I'm always praying for more patience. I'm always praying for just, you know, more of God's wisdom to just handle things the way that a, you know, like a loving father would, the way that God, you know, handles things when I, you know, don't live up to his expectations or whatever. And so, yeah, just, just that understanding that God will give us the grace. Without that faith, I, I would go insane, you know? So, Sean, since you kind of outlined what your top worries are, Jamie, could you do the same? You know, I in reading your questions, I started to try to come up with worries, which is, I'm sure, what a therapist would tell me not to do, um, because I, I worry anyways. But I think I'm often more caught up in the day-to-day, and I don't think as much into the future. Um... I feel like we're doing everything we can to sh- to safeguard our children from the evils of relativism, moral relativism, and um, hedonism, and all the all the isms. You know, um, you know, we've enrolled Claire in a, a very conservative Christian classical school in the fall, which we hope will help her learn to to prayerfully, critically analyze the world around her, which we both think is really lacking. In today's world, in most young minds, younger minds, um, we're, we plan to stay very close to the church and the sacraments and these faithful friends of ours who are continue to teach us things. So in a, in a fashion that's not really like me, I feel like it's easier to just kind of let the details go and think like we're being as intentional as we possibly can. That's, all, that's it. Yeah, kind of helps the worries to go away. And honestly, like, I just have so much on my mind day to day thinking about three, getting three square meals into the kids, napping at the right times, getting the house clean every once in a while. Like, I don't even have space in my brain to think that much down the line. <laughs> I, I know in my own life, whenever I'm worried about anything, one of the antidotes is to just be productive, to just get back to work on something. And then just things seem to kind of be okay. What's that quote like? Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's worries are sufficient for. This is in this book I read one time. <laughs> yeah. Tomorrow's evil is sufficient unto itself. Yeah. So I like that. I like the. Just, the Bible. The Bible. <laughs> Let's talk just a little bit about money. I, I looked it up online and I just never believed these numbers, period. But it said in 2015 that it's projected that it costs $233,000 to raise a single child. I just would love your opinions on that. I I like that question. <laughs> I actually started thinking about that. Like, that's a lot of money. What, did you have some thoughts on that first, Shane? I just don't believe those numbers, but but I, I'd love to know what you think. I definitely didn't like sit down with an Excel spreadsheet and figure it out. I I have a hard time believing it as well. If it is true, it's true for some people, and it doesn't absolutely does not have to be true and i've heard some really strong arguments from parents of large families that say that they 
um, are more economical than their their counterparts who have mm-hmm. one or two children because a because they have to be, but b because there's so much that can so much efficiency that can be achieved in a big family with with intentionality. It's not just going to happen you, yeah. if you are impulsive, if you don't plan, it won't happen. But I I refuse to believe that. Like when people cite financial reasons for not having a child, I I try to trust that they they know what they're talking about. But sometimes I just wonder, like, well, what financial standards are you planning to maintain with your family? And is there anything you can let go in order to be open to mm. one, two, three more lives or whatever? Yeah, I thought that that number two hundred thirty-three was could be false because I think that number could double. Like, I think if you send your kids to the most expensive private school, if you pay for their college. If you and, and you send them to like the most expensive college and they get no scholarships or no grants and you just foot their bill, you buy them a Range Rover when they turn 16, you buy a house that's so big so that each of your child can have their own big room and uh, all the newest games and the newest iPhone when it comes out and you put them all on traveling sports teams and you take expensive vacations every year and... Blah, 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 blah. Like, that number could be more than 233000 So mm-hmm. that number to me doesn't seem crazy. But to Jamie's point, yeah, it could also be much, 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 much smaller. Um, minimalism, like, in a good way. Uh, just living that life of, like, needing less, right? Like, uh, your kids don't even have to play organized sports, which would have been, like, a sacrilegious thing to <laughs> say 20 years ago. But I'm starting to realize that, yeah, that's the case. Like, to have a happy, joyful life, your kids don't need materials galore, right? Like, our Catholic faith tells us that bluntly, and it's true, right? It, it, you just don't need all that stuff. So, can you raise a kid on fewer than $233,000 a year? Absolutely. Way less. It's Way probably less better that. for them. <laughs> Probably, yeah, because of all the things that I just outlined, if I if I wanted to double that number, that whole list of things I just read, go over that again, rewind this and like think, what of those things did I say really is going to do that child tons and tons and tons of good? You paying for their college? I think it would probably be better if they applied themselves to the degree that they're able to pay for their own college, right? And you know, maybe they maybe that requires them to go to community college for a couple of years. Not the end of the world. You know, playing on the traveling sports team, what about all the experience? Whatever. Like, they, they can experience teamwork, hard work, discipline, delayed gratification, all the things that inherently sports helps craft in a young child um, without playing on the most premier league sports team. Most of the time, and this isn't to say that if your kid plays on the premier sports league, you know, or if you buy them a Ranger when they're 16, like, you know, more power to you, you're not a bad parent. Uh, we, you know, probably won't be doing those things, um, but it's not it's not the key to their their happiness to them becoming like a virtuous, wonderful person. So the more money we spend on our kids is not an assurity that our child is going to turn out better. I guess is the end of my reign. <laughs> well, I, you guys, I just want to believe that it's not going to cost that much. That's really what it is. Well, you guys said so many good things and just a few things I heard from the larger family series is uh, rent or mortgage is free because they're going to live in the same house with you. Yeah. Food, they don't eat very much. Um, gosh, transportation, you just put them in the back of the vehicle with the other ones. Mm-hmm. And those are three of your major expenses right there. 
Taxes, that's the other fourth major expense that people pay in life. Well, that's not going to change. That's on the basis of your job. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the four major expenses, transportation, food, taxes, and rent or mortgage, those don't necessarily move an inch. Just And you get deductions for you get, kids. You get some deductions. And if you get a bailout for COVID, then it pays to have a bigger family. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't spend all of that money on your kids, buying them everything and giving them everything and turning them into self-entitled jerks, then you'll save money on bail on the back end <laughs> when they don't get thrown in jail for... That's right. Living out all of their vices. Let's talk about time management. Uh, just it's very important for parents to spend time with children. How do you manage to make time for everybody? Uh, in more intentionality. I um, Just setting priorities and remembering what, what has to be done versus what I'd like to be done. Um, I can't say we have like an exact structure or schedule, but um, yeah, you know that analogy of like putting the big rocks in first and then the smaller rocks in the sand, then the water, you know, things like in our house, things like TV or the water, like every once in a while, if there's time, we'll, we'll turn on and, and we have the intentional desire to do so, we'll turn something on, but it is not going to replace a big rock of going to mass spending time with our family in prayer, doing recreational or educational activities for ourselves or our kids. So just a lot of priority setting. Okay. I try to uh, acquiesce, you know, if Josie says, will you read me this book? Or if Claire says, will you play this with me or build this puzzle? If I can in that moment, then I'll do it, right? I don't want the kids to think that the dad hasn't done anything with me in a few days because he's always working or he's always busy with this project or that. So it's, uh, I think that helps. That helps that, I, I don't know, I think naturally over the course of however many days, one kid is probably going to get a little more attention than another kid. Maybe it's because they want it. Maybe Claire's happy just off reading books by herself for a lot of the day and Josie needs the attention for whatever reason. So she's the one always in my face like, will you do this with me or will you do this? Or it could be vice versa. So um, to try to, just to be selfless with our time to say, oh, you want to do this? Great. Yeah, let's do it. But of course, we're also going to need time where it's like, uh, I will not read you the magic school bus flies with the dinosaurs for the third time in the last 45 minutes. In fact, I never want to read that book again. <laughs> Please take it back to the library. Um, so there are times where we say, maybe later, right? Like dad needs to, dad, dad wants to read his book or dad wants to just rest for a moment, or mom needs to rest for a moment. So, yeah, just, just trying to be available if we're available when the kids want us to be. Um, I'm just going to toss a bunch of different concepts at you, and you could do this in a lightning round, or you could just kind of tell me your overarching philosophy. But as they get older, have you thought about things like, I don't know, for example, their grades, or their nutrition, you know, what they eat, or their reading or how much screen time they get just those type of things nutrition and screen time we talk about and plan and think Before about was all the time <laughs> tons i'd say we devote a lot of mental energy to those two issues one letter is for obi 
Thank you, Claire. Thank you for getting the mail. Yeah, this we, is yours. we read and have and continue to just read so much about screen time and nutrition. Obviously, we try to model, you know, with our own behavior. That's what the probably the most effective parenting strategy is just do it, you know, so the kids will see you doing it. So we try to be very conscientious of our screen time around our kids. So it's not like we're in our room watching TV, you know, because we don't have a TV in our room. Um, like, oh, no, you kids go do this. We're going to sit down and watch TV. No, like, if we watch TV, it's very intentional. It's very rare. And uh, we pull the TV out of the closet and we plug it in and we hook it up and we watch a brief something that's, in some, at least in some way, educational and very leisurely. With nutrition, same thing, right? Like we've, they they've been taking multivitamins, probiotics, fish oil, you know, vitamin D on a daily basis since they were born, um, and we yeah we just don't give them treats galore. It's also like TV. It's a it's a privilege. It's something that is a reward and. It's liturgical. We, it's Sounds liturgical. good about making yeah. that like feast days in the church. Sundays are our treat days and. The feasts of our kids, patrons. patron saints and St. Nicholas and um, other things. So that's been fun for us to dive into as well. What's this, Mom? Claire, we'll watch you in just a moment. We're talking to Mr. Tim, okay? We could wind up here pretty quickly um, if that helps. That's okay. Okay. Um, okay, now this is probably for the future. Mm -hmm. um, smoking, alcohol, and drugs. <laughs> Uh, I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd prefer my kids not to smoke. I, uh, I drink occasionally as Jamie does. Again, we try to be very intentional with that too, right? Like everything has a, a time and a place. Um, I don't know, any, any habit, any behavior that our kid picks up or our kids pick up, um, we just like it to have some reason behind it. You know, like, do you chain smoke because you're bored? Do you drink because you're bored? Do you drink because you're sad? Do you eat food because you're stressed? Those are all behaviors that we're going to try to curb if we see them developing. Claire, please don't do that. Please don't make that noise. Um, so just trying to, uh, to make life like intentional, right? That's a, a big word for us, just living intentionally. So if our, I don't know how you can intentionally use drugs, at least not for a good purpose. But uh, we don't, yeah, we don't want them to, to do that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that would be my, my thought on smoking and drugs and drinking. Honestly, I plan to read some books about that later. Books of, from parents who have gotten kids through the teenage and adult, young adult years and borrow their tips. Mm -hmm. Because right now I'm into the diapers and the the sure. child size meals, so and it's, and it's conversations that we'll have with them too, right? I think that's an important thing that I've seen from afar from friends that have been parents or that are parents or or from my own parents or whatever is um, that you want to feel like you have a transparent relationship with your children. You know, we're not on the same level. We're not buddies, right? I'm your dad. You're my child. There's always going to be a hierarchy here, right? Because there is a hierarchy in the spiritual order. There's a hierarchy in the, the moral order and, and on earth here too. So like, it's, uh, yeah, it's not buddy-buddy, but 
I don't want you to be afraid to be transparent with me, right? So if you are drinking or using drugs or, you know, in any type of behavior that is problematic, um, I want you to feel comfortable to bring your temptations to me, right? Like by then or by the time our kids get to that age, um, they will be educated in commandments and what the church teaches and why and how it's all related to the justice and mercy of our Creator, and they'll have experienced the sacrament of confession, and uh, but but ho hopefully they'll also know that their parents love them unconditionally, right? We're supposed to model the love of God the Father, which is a, an unconditional nature, which we're never going to be able to even come close to, to, to doing, to, to imitating, but um, we'll do our best. And so if they feel like they can come to us with their struggles, then... You know, if if they get hung up on drinking or smoking or drugs, at least they'll feel comfortable coming and talking to us about it. I think that's good. Well, I've asked you both a little bit about the things that we maybe don't want kids doing. So let me just ask briefly about maybe what we do want, which is how do you grow and develop their individuality to help them become the people that they are? Mm -hmm. Recognizing their natural temperaments, and again, trying to just craft that so that it becomes more of a virtue and less of a vice. To go back to Claire's tendency to be a bit strong-willed, to put it kindly, how do we how do we make sure that Claire grows up to, uh, you know, be a president or reform an order, you know, or be a mother superior or something like that, as opposed to. Um, being Martin Luther. <laughs> Sorry, can I say that? <laughs> or Luther is going to listen to this podcast. Um, but to turn people away from the truth because, uh, I don't know, or, or just to be, I don't know, to, to, to let something that could have been a great strength overcome her and instead lead her to, to lesser heights than what God desires for her. So uh, I don't I don't know I don't exactly what that looks like other than continuing to educate ourselves to ask for God's grace and to cooperate with it um, to spend time individually with the kids and to just make sure that they grow up knowing that there is an order that there is obedience to be given that there is love that is as unconditional as my imperfectness can make it and uh, yeah hope that like a plant with good soil, sunlight, and water, it will fulfill its created purpose, and that is to know, love, and serve God. You know, as far as a child, not a plant. <laughs> I guess a plant can serve God, but I don't know if it can know Him and love Him. But yeah, we just want our kids to know, love, and serve God, and we'll just try to provide them with the environment that is best suited to, to make sure that that happens. Okay. I'd like to teach them to pray and not just to ask God for what they want, but I've just read some interesting things lately about how a young mind, or minds are capable of deep contemplative prayer at much younger ages than you would guess. And, you know, I wasn't taught how to pray like that until my young adulthood, but for kids to just learn how to hear the voice of God and sit quietly and listen to it, um... I think will help them develop their personality, their individual talents and strengths. Because if they know that God's leading them down a certain path, then then they'll go that way. Um, you know, I, I grew up thinking that you just ask God for things when you needed them, rather than 
you just sit and listen to his voice and, and consult him on important matters. So I want, I want my teenagers to be asking God about these problems they're having and of course coming to us, but I want mm-hmm. them to be like, God, what do you, where do you want me to go to college or what should I be studying? Should I be dating this person, God? Like, mm-hmm. is this friend good for me, God? Like, I would love it if my kids are having those. I don't think it's lofty, but I don't think it's impossible. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Well, it's uh, something I remind myself that God loves our kids more than we do, right? He desires their good for their good. A lot of times I wonder, am I just, like, do I desire my children's safety through the obstacles of life because I, like, desire their good for its own sake or because I want to be spared the pain of seeing my child become a drug addict, right? Hmm. It's like, well, I want my child to to make it through this and to become a saint for their own good or for my good, right? It's a lot less stress on 60-year-old me if 30-year-old Claire has her head on straight and her ducks in a row and all that other stuff. Um, but God loves them so perfectly, like he loves them for their own sake. So if I remind myself of that, then he's not going to lead them astray. He's not going to like be the one to mess them up, right? Like it's our job to be good stewards of these great gifts that he's given us in the form of children and to, to help them be humble, right? To teach them, like Jamie said, how to pray so that they can develop that relationship that we currently have with our Creator, right? That individual relationship, um, just to make our family an environment that will foster that um, knowledge of God, that love of God, and that love of serving neighbors. We want them to be other, like other-minded or other, like service service-oriented. So selfless, humble, logical, rational. Uh, yeah, like Jamie said, it is kind of lofty goal but it's it's God's will for them so unless we get in the way of it then how could it not come to fruition right okay well I only have two more questions at this point and uh one of them is what do you wish that I would have asked that I didn't ask I I don't know I was looking through your your questions and they all seemed like like very good questions. I personally can't think of anything that I wish you would have asked. Um, Jamie may have something different to say when she gets back from attending to Claire, but uh, maybe we'll have to ask her to answer that one. What's your other, what's your other question? My very last question is um, my favorite question, which is just imagine that you're 100 years old and you and Jamie are holding hands and you're sitting on a porch and... Here's Claire, and here's Josie, and here are your other children. And uh, people are just asking you, Grandpa and Grandma, what constituted a good life? What do you really, really look back on and just are so happy about? Again, if, if, if the children and the grandchildren are... I don't know if, they're, if they are... God-centered, you know, if they have a good environment, right? I guess it's just, I feel like it's our job, like a farmer, to provide the seeds with fertile soil, access to the sun, and water, right? If you're a farmer and you get, you're given these seeds and you're just like, well, I'll just stick them over in this sopping wet mud behind this 
shed. Maybe it'll get an hour of sun every day. Like, and then your seeds don't do anything. Like, well, what, what good were you, you know? But if you take these seeds, you receive them as the blessing that they are and say, wow, these could turn into like amazing plants. And so um, if I look all these years down the road and I realize that we did the best that we could, right? That, that, the, that the seeds of the plants that we, you know, were given also have access to sun and soil and water and just this great environment and that we chose to provide that um, that would make me feel good right it's like oh look at look at all of these blossoming plants you know look at all these children who are going to grow up knowing who god is look at their parents who are our children um you know struggling with just day-to-day -day life, making sense of things, um, having their ups and downs, hopefully mostly ups in their own relationship with God. And, uh, and that's because we didn't take any shortcuts. We didn't take the easy way out. We, um, we, we suffered for them um, to give them the best that we had and, and look, at, look at the little fruits that that's produced and, and look at them go. You know, that would be... The good life for me, yeah. You know, looking, yeah, down the road. That's great. I, I love these sum it all up type questions. So, Jamie, I just have two for you, and here they are. What do you wish I would have asked that I didn't ask? And then the hundred-year-old question. What do I wish you had asked? Um. I'm glad you didn't ask anything else because then you would have exposed all the chinks in our armor. <laughs> we barely got through seeming like normal human beings and let's keep up the facade. <laughs> I think you asked a nice balance of questions and I, I enjoyed talking about what you asked. Um, the 100-year-old question. Yeah, you're 100 years old. You're sitting on the porch. Sean is holding your hand. Josie and Claire are nearby and all of your other children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And they say, what is good about life, Grandma? What was good about your life? I would say once I finally understood something that I'm trying to understand right now, and I'm nowhere near getting to it, but I, if I can understand this and teach it to my children and grandchildren, I think it can be called a success. If I can truly understand that the things in life that happen to me are given to me by God and um, his will in my life is for any particular moment is the circumstances and the people that he is putting in my life at that time. Um, and that it really doesn't have to be any more complex than that, but um, just to accept things as they are from God, to ask God what to do with them and to proceed with the confidence and hope in his trust, in, or confidence, hope, trust in his goodness and mercy. If I can figure that out and my kids, my grandkids can figure it out, I'll feel very blessed. Well, I am just so grateful for the time that you guys have spent um, answering all my questions. And I think people are going to find this very enlightening. Thank you so much, Jamie. You're welcome, Tim. It Thanks, was Tim. fun. Thank you, Sean.
excuse me, like I'll spank my kids. And now, a few outtakes. Say oh. something. Something. Say a few more things. A few more things, and a few more things than that. Check, baby, check, baby. Yeah, that one, looks, two, three, that's four. good. Oh. I think that's going to be good. Jamie? Check, check, microphone check. Can you hear me? I think this is going to be okay. I guess I need to be a little louder. Mm. Okay. Yeah, just a little louder wouldn't hurt. Chickity, chickity, chub, checker. Chickity, chuck, check, checkaroo. And that's all. We'll be back on Thursday.